From Infinia ML, I am James Kotecki, and this is Machine Meets World. We're talking artificial intelligence today with my guest, the CEO of Pryon, Igor Yablokov. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Igor, you and I have chatted before, but for folks that are just meeting you in this interview for the first time, can you just kind of describe your background? And I think people would be especially interested in your background contributing to Amazon's Alexa, and then how that connects to the work that you're doing today. Sure. So um, I started my career in IBM Microelectronics, and about halfway through that, um, I ended up uh, joining the uh, IBM Pervasive Computing Division. Uh, at the time, it was the island of misfit toys, and that's where a lot of things uh, that people take for granted nowadays, like artificial intelligence and Internet of Things, were being gestated uh, in the company. And so we had some crazy ideas. Uh, we said, hey, we're doing these joint projects with uh, Sony Toshiba um, on something called the cell architecture for the PlayStation. Um, why don't we put a microphone on that? And, uh, and everybody started laughing, saying, hey, you know, nobody, nobody's going to put a microphone in their house. And so the following year, we said, oh, my gosh, let's not put embedded speech um, uh, in that device. Let's, uh, let's make cloud-based speech recognition, and that way we can free up the local resources for the graphics uh, uh, processing. Uh, and everybody was laughing again, saying, hey, no enterprise worth their salt is ever going to allow um, uh, their customer data to leave their data centers. Um, and then in the third year, we said, oh, my gosh, you know, not only can we transcribe people's speech, we can also answer any questions any humans will ever have. And uh, and, and by then, people were losing um, uh, them, themselves, that it was uh, an impossible task. And so we ended up departing. Um, and uh, we founded a startup uh, called Yap way back when. Um, started very small, of course, uh, got seed funding, got venture capital funding. A year after its, its foundation, we were uh, joined with folks that used to work on the iPod. Um, uh, so there was an iPod R&D team um, uh, that we crossed paths with that ended up leaving NVIDIA. Uh, and um, and uh, we had a go of it. We were blended into a prototype iPhone. Uh, that never saw the light of day. And, and by the end of our experience there, we had dozens of enterprise and carrier customers. We were being used for call mining, uh, for um, uh, voicemail attacks, messaging, searches. Uh, and, uh, and that's when uh, Amazon came calling on us and, and did the acquisition. Google tried to get us uh, as well, but our research team wanted to go somewhere where it was going to be a, a blank slate opportunity. And so your technology... How, how much of that was put into Alexa? What's the right way to frame that? Well, let's put it this way. Um, what I hear uh, through the grapevine is they still use the word prion as the wake word for prototype uh, Alexas. And there's still something called Yap Stats where a lot of the transactions uh, flow through as well for them to inspect. Look, like anything, right? It, it, you know, we were a company of several dozen people. You know, Amazon has added thousands of people to this issue. So after a while, Sure, you can do the DNA test and your 23andMe still has your startup in there. But the amount of an, a sustained mm -hmm. investment that, that an Amazon, a Google, an Apple can make is just immense, you know, given the, the, the amount of uh, you know, time and material they can throw against it. So we're, we're just blessed to be part of the early stages of it. And then catch us up to the present day, because you said in Amazon, they still use the code word or the wake word prion for kind of, kind of tests. And prion was the word that you were using when you were at Yap, I gather. Right. And then you took that word prion and made it the name of your new company, which does what? 
Yeah, it's uh, augmented intelligence for the enterprise. It's basically how do we bring that experience that people have at home into the workplace? Now, the problem at work is it's it's not um, a homogeneous environment like we have at home. At home, we buy into Apple's HomeKit or Google Assistant or or um, um, you know the Samsung ecosystem or things of that sort. But when we come, when we bring it to work. Most of these large-scale enterprises uh, grew up through M&A transactions, and so they have a hodgepodge of, of systems, applications, and data that they've uh, gotten um, uh, collapsed through the decades uh, that they've been operating. And so it's a, a much tougher problem. And so to think about bringing a natural language interface on top of all of those things is, uh, uh, is a great problem to solve. Um, I want to pause for a second and go back to something you said at the very beginning when you're introducing yourself. You're talking about how people were laughing at you, basically, or maybe at least certainly poo-pooing the ideas that you had. No one's ever going to want to put a microphone in. No one's going to want to do this kind of uh, mm -hmm. put, put language in the cloud. Um, as a CEO, as a leader in this space, how do you figure out when it's worth pushing through an idea that people are laughing at? and when to take their skepticism seriously. Because certainly there's a case of kind of selection bias, right? On the part of successes, right? And you were certainly a success because you were acquired by Amazon. But there probably were a lot of people who had ideas that other people laughed at. They pressed forward and guess what? It turns out those ideas were bad, which is why they were getting that kind of feedback. So how do you, especially in the AI space where everything is moving forward so quickly and it's all can be very, can be a, a lot of bluster. How do you differentiate between good and bad ideas? Well, I mean, you know, in their defense, though, they were also trying to allocate scarce resources, right? And from their standpoint, you know, a product line manager had to show up with an idea that can deliver, you know, 100 million plus in contribution to the company within 12 months of, of sustained investment. And so, you know, they look through these different options that are presented to them, and then they figure out which, uh, you know, which ones are going to fly and which ones aren't, aren't going to. Try again? So, um, so from that standpoint, it's you know they're always looking for these for these uh, for these short things. Hmm. And I think I hear a voice assistant actually talking in the background. Did we accidentally <laughs> wake one up? We did. We did. Unfortunately. There's... <laughs> okay. Um, well, maybe this voice assistant can contribute some of the some of these questions that I'm asking you. Um, so uh, let's talk about the uh, advancement of AI as people perceive it. People often perceive it, and it's often framed. And I noticed that on your website, your marketing does some of this well, as mm -hmm. well, which is you frame AI up as a, an assistant to humans, an assistant typically that is kind of doing tedious tasks, offloading things that humans either don't want to do or it would take them a long time to do it, and they're better served elsewhere anyway. Do you think that's the right framing going forward? Because it seems to me like eventually that framing, while useful in the short term, because you just think, think about what people are doing and you offload some of that. It seems like AI is a fundamentally different technology than just like adding another person into the mix. And so if you just frame it in human terms like that, do you miss out on opportunities for what it really could be doing? James, I have to tell you, that's one of the most excellent questions I've ever gotten. And here's, and here's why. <laughs> We're, from, from, from our marketing standpoint, practitioners frame it that way because it's easy for people to connect the dots on why it's useful and how it, just, it drives a business case. Right to make people more productive or to reduce costs. Right, but Fred Jelinek famously said, "Airplanes don't um, flap their wings." Right, so you know there's there's a fixation for hey, we need an AI to be explainable, and so we have to map you know the types of activities that it's doing that are going to be displacing certain certain costs 
or alleviating um, uh, you know shortfalls uh, that we have in terms of human uh, production. But in reality, they're going to be doing new things. We just don't have a great grasp of what those new things are are going to be, or 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 how to model them, or how to even describe them. Um, I know when I talked to one um, uh, you know a fellow that who was leading AI for uh, um, you know one of the defense uh, services, he said we don't care about explainable AI; we just need it to work. Uh, and so, from that standpoint, I think as people get more comfortable with these technologies they'll realize new things that these things can do that that is beyond our, our comprehension of, of what's actually happening, but they're still performing units of work that are valuable uh, to organizations. Just right now, it's easier to say, hey, it's, it's, um, it's replacing a horse and buggy, right? So it'll get you to your destination faster um, than you can conceive of, but nobody was saying, hey, this, this replacement for a horse and buggy can now you know, take a space shuttle from one pad or uh, another, right. uh, or it can, you know, it can, it can drive itself on the moon. You know, if you have this, this type of vehicle, we're still t so early that all people can do is, is, is compare it to a one horsepower um, um, uh, <laughs> tool. Right. And nobody calls it the horseless carriage anymore, which is of course what they had to call right. it in the beginning. Cause that was the only people way people could conceive of it. Um, are you able to, I mean, it's it's almost like a paradoxical problem, right? Because it's like, how do you how do you predict things that, by definition, can't be predicted by the human brain? Um, but are you able to look around the corner just a little bit more than the average person? I just want to push you on this point just one more time and see if I can get any kind of predictions about the kinds of things that this kind of thing could do, in as much as it can be explained, that just aren't easily frameable in you know human replacement terms. Well, I think, uh, look, the people that can see far ahead of us are what the folks writing science fiction, right? So they're, you know, that art form is pushing all possible boundaries because it's looking at what's happening in life sciences, what's happening in AI, what's happening in quantum computing, so on, or what's happening in physics and, and trying to extrapolate possible futures for us, right? They're literally going in all directions. This is what happens if we're under the ocean. This is what happens if we're off world. This is what happens in between. This is what happens if family units are described in, in different ways. This is what happens when we're blended with machines. So they're the ones really going out and looking at all possible uh, futures for humans, for hybrids, for non-humans, right? Let's, let's put them in three easy buckets. People like us, you know, what we have to do, you know, for, uh, for the work environment is look ahead five years and work backwards from that. Right. Because that's the only way that you're going to be able to attract, uh, you know, venture capital is to say, sure. you know, applying capital towards this problem is going to lead to this outcome over the course of the next half decade. And and these enterprise customers are buying our product today and they're also buying this roadmap because we're going to converge to where they want to be in five years time as they go ahead and compete with one another, you know, and try to all become trillion dollar plus market cap companies by by reaching that level of productivity. So it's, for us, we're half futurists in some ways because we can see, you know, five years ahead instead of 10, 15, you know, 25, where things, you know, get a little bit divergent. For us, it can't be divergent. It has to converge at that five-year mark and then work backwards. What sci-fi inspires you? I heard that the Y and Pryon, and we can look at the, I, th I don't think this <laughs> logo that we see above your head, but I think a previous version of the logo had the Y as kind of the flux capacitor from Back to the Future. So I know that you're thinking about sci-fi and what, what, what other kind of works of fiction 
inspire you in that realm? Yeah, well, even even this logo uh, here has uh, hidden uh, puzzles uh, in it as, as well. But the flux capacitor, look, back to the future, right? You're working backwards from something that you know and then trying to get to that outcome. It was also the three dots for the first locations where we started the company and also the why and yap, you know, in, in terms of mm -hmm. the origins of, of, of some of our uh, uh, work as well. Uh, the color blue, right, which is a little bit of IBM, a little bit of the Alexa color uh, as well that we used uh, uh, in there. So we tend to hide lots of little uh, little puzzles in, in our work. Uh, I think half my tweets have puzzles um, uh, hidden, hidden in them uh, as well. Um, I think from, from my standpoint, science fiction, look, um, uh, foundation, you know, I've said this uh, before, the I fact that yeah, the, the fact that you can absorb that, uh, and I remember reading it as a kid, um, when, I, you know, for one of the summers, our parents sent us to a monastery to learn how to, how to paint and work on a farm and what have you. And I remember reading it by candlelight and just my mind being blown that, oh my gosh, one day there'll be math that can predict these outcomes. And if you know that, then you can put steps in place in order to either achieve those outcomes or deflect, you know, some of the neg uh, negative circumstances that are happening. And now with uh, certainly the rise of big data, machine learning and everything else, you know, he pred <laughs> predicted it pretty nicely, right? It's almost like uh, Leonardo da Vinci predicting helicopters, uh, you know, way back when. So look, whether it's Bezos talking about the Star Trek inspired him for the, for the Amazon Echo or others, I mean, w people draw inspiration from art. You know, that's why both my parents were artists and, you know, not, not technologists, but there's, um, it's two sides of the same coin, right? Innovation is a highly creative uh, process. That's why we're really passionate about it because we get to essentially create the world that we want to live in, which is mind blowing to me and how fantastically fun that, that could be for all of us. Um, let's swing all the way back from the far flung future and snap mm -hmm. right back to the very immediate present. Um, I talked to you four months ago, just as the kind of national lockdowns were starting, especially where we live here in North Carolina. Um, now it's been four months since then. We've had four months of kind of uh, pandemic uh, lockdown living and working from home and all kinds of things. What has the pandemic taught you about the way that people work with and adapt to artificial intelligence? Okay. So here, here's, uh, let, me, let me go more general than that. So I think the tech industry fetishized all these technologies that we're on, right? Look at these Zooms, uh, Slacks, things like that. Look, everybody can work from home. We can be disconnected. We can live in a virtual reality world, right? Where we never have to go into a workplace. And after most of us have experienced it over the la over the course of the last uh, quarter or so, uh, we found how much of that was bunk, right? That, that we're missing the human connection of experiencing these worlds for ourselves, interacting with people, interacting with museums, interacting with restaurants, interacting with, with you know, different cultures, going to different places, and what that does for our cognitive ability and our and brain elasticity. And so, you know, half of uh, half of what we've been thinking would be new and novel and interesting and drive more efficiencies. Um, we saw how much was was uh, removed from our experiences. So that's one lesson I think all of us. Uh, um, uh, you know, took from all this that, hey, you know what? We're actually still human. We're humans that use technology, but we're still human too, right? And we've been human far longer than we've been humans with, with technology. And then the second thing is, all right, how do we reorder the things that we're building in order to benefit, um, uh, you know, people that are trying to remediate, uh, you know, the pandemic? In our case, it, it was working with 
with uh, you know companies uh, like K4 Connect, which is uh, backed by Intel Capital. Uh, you know, Scott's team is great there trying to build uh, technical solutions in uh, senior living communities. And we felt like, hey, that's going to be an area of technology that nobody else is going to touch because they don't understand it. And here's a great partner that's trying to envision how the uh, 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 virus related intelligence goes to the caregivers in order to, uh, uh, you know, help that population since they're the most impacted by this issue. And then certainly other places like hospital systems and what have you that we've been working uh, behind the scenes. Um, the rest, I think, when we were pitching, you know, things like knowledge assistance to uh, these Fortune 500 companies, it was a nice to have because they're like, hey, you know, whatever, we can always tap on the shoulders of our people and get them information that they need. And there's others, other ways to get them information. Now they're all beating a door down. They're saying, uh, you know, that whole water cooler process for us, having staff meetings where we can brief people on post has all broken down and we need a better way of delivering knowledge to them. You're talking about the way to use AI to effectively search within your company's corpus of knowledge, documents, emails, messages, whatever, and extract insights from that, especially in a world where you don't work in the same building. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, or just staying in touch. All of these things that we said, eventually there would be AI in the center of all of these uh, companies where I know people have been using these cl cliches saying, um, you know, that's years ahead. Well, years have transformed into months and months have been transformed into weeks. Weeks have transformed into days. And tell me a little bit more about what's going on with K4 Connect. So I am an elderly person and I'm in a nursing home and the pandemic is raging. Um, what, especially for people who don't know what K4 Connect does, I know a little bit about them, but what, what, what is my experience now thanks to this partnership that you have, or maybe, maybe the experiences on the caregiver side, what are they able to do now thanks to what you're bringing to the table? Well, think, think of this way, right? So the, the caregivers want to maximize their time working with, uh, uh, with the residents, right? And one of the things that you can't do is, is go into Google every time you have a question of, okay, how do I deal with an Alzheimer's patient to try to install a mask on them. What do we do with these new activities that they're used to staying in connection with each other, but now I can't do that. So how do I replace uh, that activity? And, and um, you know, th think about how ludicrous it is whenever we, we have uh, different medical tests that we, we undertake, right? And then you read something in, in your blood, oh, your, your uh, potassium level is low, blah, 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 blah. And then we're not sure what that means. And we go ahead and copy and paste that into Google, right? In order to mm -hmm. find that out. Well, that should be a private search, right? Anything related to, to ourselves, you know, medical issues and things of that sort shouldn't actually be going to open source, you know, uh, consumer, um, you know, uh, sources and stuff like that. They derive ads from that. They end up learning something about us that we probably don't want them to know. And so I think a lot more of that, you know, think of even a big enterprise contemplating M&A. Right. So they're trying to figure things out about these companies, and yet they're revealing their targets by having their employees, you know, typing in the company names that they're interested in there. And that gives what an unfair advantage to the larger tech companies that are hoovering all of this information to understand, you know, what the industry's, you know, buying patterns are likely to be over the course of the next half decade. So it's about making AI more private, more customized to the needs of patients in right. a caregiving setting. Right. Make it make it more private and, and make it faster so that uh, people can get curated knowledge that's specific to the things that they do so they don't have to wade through the, the open source morass. 
And I think you, you and I have discussed this before, but given your background, it's important to clarify. I think this is not necessarily a matter of people doing voice searches, right? For you, it's more about the AI on the back end of you can get questions in there from typing it or asking it or maybe eventually thinking it and it can pick up your brainwaves. But for you, the, it's really about the AI on the back end that's answering those questions, however they come in. Yeah, we built an insight engine. Whether you want to type into it in natural language, whether you want to talk to it or eventually do other, you know, provide other forms of input, whether it's a human providing input, or maybe you have an automated process that that's uh, asking for the query, uh, it's just available to you. I want to talk to you about an article that you wrote in January, which is six months ago, it seems like six years ago, in Forbes, and the title, I'm just going to read it till I get it right, was what politicians don't understand about the AI debate. And of course, there's been a lot of discussion about what the government is doing right and wrong in the middle of the pandemic. But of course, AI is still progressing. So what, what did you say in that article about what politicians don't get about AI? And then now flashing forward six months, uh, what would you say if you wrote that article today? Yeah, so it's, it, I feel it's, it's election era fear mongering in order to get people to press one button or another uh, about that particular issue. Um, the point is humans have adapted to new forms of technology um, in, in the past. And, and yet the challenges that we, we uh, encounter, we always assume arrogantly that these are the biggest challenges that humanity has ever faced. Nobody's ever faced a, a threat like AI in the past. And guess what people said about industrialization? People said this about the information age, so on and so forth. And somehow, because we work on relatively geologic time, we can deal with it, we can absorb, people can retrain, people can adapt, people can say, hey, I'm not gonna get this college diploma, I'm going to get uh, that one because I'm gonna predict that it's going to be more relevant you know, to where the market's going to be 15 to 30 years you know, down the road. And guess what? When I even look at my uh, you know, diploma relative to what I do now, I already see it drifting and, and hyper-specialized, right? Just from getting a generic you know, computer engineering uh, degree. So from that standpoint, that already happens within our lifetimes. No, nobody should be entering higher ed, assuming that 30 years in the future, you're going to be doing that same thing. You're going to be an eternal student. And the goodness, it's a double-edged sword too, right? Um, the negative side is you're going to be impacted by AI, but the positive side is you're going to be impacted by AI, right? It's going to be helping you adapt and learn, you know, at a brisker pace than even I've been able. Uh, to do. And the ones that know how to leverage that are going to have an advantage, an economic advantage. Um, there is a big vision uh, for this company. And here's what it is. You know, when we talk about, um, you know, how AI is going to disrupt things. The, the, the thing that triggered the information age was that only large scale companies could afford computing, right? Yeah. These were the big uh, mainframes, right? That IBM and others were driving into these enterprises. And it took visionaries like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates in order to democratize access to that and drop um, a, a PC or Mac on everybody's desktop. And so the same thing's going to happen, and that allowed um, the information age to be democratized for the rest of us and to um, onboard ourselves to the information superhighway. That same thing's coming for AI. Right now, this is the playground for, for, for uh, a relative few data scientists, uh, for big companies you know, that have the hardware and, and, and software to compete. Sooner or later, that will get democratized. It will be dropped on everybody's desktop. It doesn't matter if you're a doc worker, if you're a nurse, if you're a cafeteria worker, if you're a, a, a lineman. 
everybody's going to have access uh, to an AI that can help them do their jobs better. And we hope that that's going to, uh, you know, reduce the, the delta between haves and have nots. I totally get where you're going with that. Uh, but there is one difference between uh, the revolution with Bill Gates and the revolution that you're talking about now, which was that when the information revolution hit my desk at home, I literally got a computer, a new computer, a piece of furniture on my desktop, or maybe I got mm -hmm. a new a new graphical interface that I didn't have access to before. I can mm -hmm. drag and drop. I can teach my parents how to drag and drop and put things in a graphical trash can, and it all kind of makes sense. With AI, a lot of the applications are, a lot of what AI can do is just do the things that you're already doing, but like make them work better behind the scenes. So my question to you, not disputing at all what you're saying, mm -hmm. but will it will it feel as revolutionary to the individuals who are being impacted or will it just feel more like a gradual sense that everything is getting better or at least there's fewer you know, failures when I do a search or when some kind of filters in place or all the things that we use AI you know, already to do? Yeah. So, so look, I think you're, you're right. There's an evolutionary component and there's a revolutionary component and, and, and the revolutionary stuff doesn't happen on a schedule. Right. So we can predict, Hey, you know, the new Apple devices coming out later, uh, later this year are going to have most likely have better cameras and faster speed and this and that. And there's probably going to be one revolutionary thing. That's going to be a surprise that gets thrown in there, but mm -hmm. you don't get more than one surprise. Right, and then they may wait on some surprises because something else needs uh, 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 needs to happen. So, it's not just the software; it's also the hardware. Right, Ed edge-based processing that's disconnected to any sort of cloud service that's going to allow you certain thing to do certain private things completely disconnected from the network. That's coming, right? And to have software that can better take advantage of that, you know, so that you can use it in more robust environments and disconnected environments and secure environments. That's part of that drive and fascination. Think about this way. It, it was a relative few folks that knew how to solder these boards together, right, in the early days of the personal computer, but then somebody figured out the packaging of it. Here's a screen, here's a keyboard, the mother's board's in there, just plug, plug it into a power and you're, and you're ready to go. The same thing will have to happen with AI, but on the software front, I, I deeply believe in, in natural language, right? Because if you look backwards in time, relative few of us became computer scientists, mathematicians, engineers, and, and, and scientists and what have you that, that learned um, the language of computers, right? The ones and zeros, assembly code, all of the different programming languages uh, you, you, know, you can think of. That was, that was open to a smaller population. With natural language now, with semantic inter interaction, you can just say things and stuff happens behind the scenes. Now the machine, uh, the relationship between humans and the machine actually reversed itself where the machines have enough processing power and enough senses now where they, they'll be able to see gestures, right? Whether we're smiling or not, facial reco and things like that. Once they fuse all of these senses together, you can just start talking through, hey, I wanna write a computer program. I want it to do this, I want it to do that. I want it to get that, that information there. I want it to fuse it with this. And I want, when you get to this part of the process, I want you to go ask Bob a question about what we should do, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff gets put together and now you have augmented intelligence and you didn't have to have a, a PhD in data science in order to do that. That's the breakthroughs that, I, that I'm looking for that are going to, um, um, I think democratize access to it. It's not just, hey, you you now have access to this Python library, and you t have to take you know 120 hours of MOOCs and God knows what in order to figure out how to work. No, it's going to sit there and allow you to be you, 
and yet take proprietary knowledge you have about mm -hmm. these workflows to benefit your own uh, situation. That's the, that's what I'm excited about. Um, I would love to end it there on an optimistic note, but I do have one more question, uh, <laughs> which is about the kind of global power dynamics, because you talked about, you know, election year fear mongering, and that's, of course, talking about the U.S. election. But when we look at the relationship between AI and the powers of different nation states, I believe it was Putin who said something along the lines of whoever controls AI controls the future. And, you know, um, you can debate how far along Russia is along that path, but there's probably some grain of truth to that. Right. And you I know you've done some national security work looking at the relationship between entrepreneurship and kind of geopolitical issues. So can you end us on a macro geopolitical security note? How do you see AI shaping the balance of power in the coming years? It will, right? I mean, it's it's um, uh, what what gets described as hyperwar, right? Is uh, that having having AI as part of the intelligence process is helpful, you know, so, so that the nation states that right. take advantage of that are going to have greater awareness about uh, the world and how they react with uh, allies and adversaries, and then. You know, in in a in a kinetic war, war space, it's also similar, right? So the entities that are going to be able to react faster, whether it's drones or, uh, let's say, there's a decapitation strike against, um, um, uh, you know, your chain of command. What happens? Are you able to react and get the remaining forces to, you know, to counter uh, strike within, a, a, you know, a period of time when humans are still going to find it's a chaotic situation? And so there's a lot of opportunities there, um, you know, for for having a prop, uh, proper defensive posture. And that doesn't even include any of the stuff that needs to happen in cyberspace, right? Where, where all of the attacks, the asymmetric attacks by folks that maybe can't go against us pound for pound on the material side, but they can, um, you know, leverage, um, uh, you know, cyber warfare against us in, uh, in cyberspace. So all of those things are, are being worked on, yeah. uh, you know, behind the scenes. And gosh, especially at a time when we're all even more reliant on the internet than ever to do our jobs and we're not physically connected, uh, that becomes even more serious. Yeah, forget, listen, forget about the internet, right? Look, uh, crawl down further in Maslow's hierarchy, right? Your water supply and your electrical supply and everything else that you can think of and your hospitals and everything else, those are all interconnected now. And, and somebody that can figure out, you know, what happens if you open up uh, your tap water and nothing flows out anymore? That's a problem, mm -hmm. you know, without water, forget it. You know, then it's like, okay, fine. Now we can disrupt the, you know, food supply chains. Look at, those were some of the, the, the most worrisome things in the pandemic, right? Were, was, yeah. was that, you know, look at the island of Manhattan, right? Within 48 hours time, if, if you um, disrupt supply chain, there's no, no food on the island, right? Um, you know, people don't realize, you know, how, you know, how, um, just in time <laughs> managed those mm -hmm. supply chains uh, are, right? So, that's, those are the things that uh, those uh, decision makers are worried about. Well, we kind of flipped it because I like to usually end on an optimistic note, which you did in the previous question. And, and this question <laughs> was a little bit more chilling, but certainly food for thought. Igor Yablokov, CEO of Pryon. Thank you so much for being a guest today on Machine Meets World. Thanks for having me. And thank you so much for watching. Machine Meets World is a production of Infinia ML. You can sign up for our email list if you go to infiniaml.com. A little pop-up will pop up. You can sign up for our email there. You can listen to this as a podcast. You can get it as a video. You can do all kinds of stuff. We really appreciate it. I am James Kotecki, and that is what happens when Machine Meets World. <laughs>